Now, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. This evening, we'll hear God's Word from Judges 3, verses 12 to 30. But before we hear God's Word, let us call upon Him once again in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before You and hear Your Word once again, I, I ask by Your grace that You would impress upon us just how much You have loved us as our Heavenly Father. How committed You have been and remain to save Your children. Lord, may we wonder yet again at the love of God in Christ. Even as we continue to abhor our own sin, may we rejoice that Christ has taken our sin upon Himself and paid for it in the cross, that we may no longer be dead in sin, but become alive in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. We read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. 
And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. But maybe you are wondering, why is Ehud in the Bible? Have you ever asked yourself that question? For in all honesty, the story of Ehud is a very strange story. And when you read it or hear it, you may feel as embarrassed as the servants who were waiting outside the room for their king to stop going to the bathroom. In fact, when I reread this story to my kids earlier this week, Brielle, my oldest daughter, knowing what was coming, when we get to the part where, Ehud, where Eglon is about to die, covers her ears and walks out of the room because she thinks it's gross. You may even think to yourself that a story full of fat and feces does not belong in God's holy word, a word which the psalmist describes as pure and clean in Psalm 19. For this story is intentionally visceral. Some parts are gross. Some actions sound morally questionable. So one of the commentaries I read this week even begins, now what are we going to do with this section of Scripture? But all of this simply puts Ehud on a long list of Bible stories and characters that make Bible readers blush or squirm, along with the story of Noah and his sons, Lot and his daughters, Sodom and Gomorrah, Judah and Tamar, and that's only Genesis. If we're honest, the Bible not only confuses us at times, it sometimes it embarrasses us. It makes us uncomfortable. But we should never be embarrassed by God's Word. Because even the seemingly scandalous, visceral, and gory parts have lessons to teach us. So my goal tonight is to show you that this strange story is a strange story of salvation that is part of a greater and perhaps even stranger story of salvation. And so my answer to the question, why is Ehud in the Bible, is that Ehud is in the Bible because his story yet again helps you see and trust a faithful God who is committed to saving his unfaithful people. And to help you see this, I'll first just walk through the strange story of salvation in summary form and then offer three lessons. Now you may recall that the previous story we heard in Judges of God delivering the Israelites from Cushan Rishathaim through Othniel was intended to establish a general pattern that we would see throughout Judges. And Ehud's story follows this pattern to a T. It just provides a lot more details than we were given with Othniel. So the pattern begins, as it always does, with sin. You hear that word? The the Israelites sinned again. 
Isn't that sometimes how it feels for us? As we go through our lives and struggling with sin, and day after day, there it is. We sinned again. The Israelites had had rest for 40 years, but when Othniel dies, the Israelites once again turn away from the Lord in idolatry, doing what is evil in his sight. The pattern, therefore, continues with discipline, because as we've been learning, sin always has consequences. God, as he did previously, punishes them by raising up an adversary. And in this instance, the adversary that God strengthens is Eglon, the king of Moab. Now notice once again that the only reason Eglon gains power over Israel is because God empowers him. All of the chaos in this time of the judges is not the result of God losing control. It's simply God dealing with a stubbornly sinful people. The chaos is always controlled chaos. See, almost no one in the book of Judges is willingly serving God, and yet everyone must still serve God and fulfill His purpose. And so the question in life is not whether or not you will serve God. You will. You will fulfill His purposes in this world. The question is whether or not you will willingly serve God. Now, the Moabites were not one of the Canaanite peoples left in the land. They were a people who lived just outside of Canaan. They were the descendants of Moab, who was one of the sons of Lot's two daughters. Lot had two daughters. They each had a son by their father. One was named Moab. The other was named Ammon. Ruth, you may remember, was a Moabite. So the Israelites and the Moabites are distantly related because Lot was Abraham's nephew. Now Eglon doesn't work alone. He gathers the Ammonites and the Amalekites and they collectively oppress Israel. And the Israelites, we are told, were subjected to Eglon for 18 years. It's not a short time. And so this season of oppression leads to the next stage of the pattern, which is the Israelites crying out to the Lord, not for forgiveness of sins, but for relief from suffering. And the Lord, as we repeatedly see in his mercy and grace, raises up yet another deliverer to save them. And this deliverer is Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin. And besides his name and his lineage, the only detail we're given about Ehud is that he is a left-handed man. And that may seem like a strange detail. I don't, I don't know about you, but when I introduce myself to others, I don't say, hi, my name is Neil. I'm right-handed, by the way. Or if I introduce my wife, this is my wife, Leandra. She's also right-handed, just in case you were wondering. Now, it seems strange, but as we'll see, this is actually quite important for the story. It's also quite ironic because he is a Benjamite. And Benjamin means son of the right hand. So we are told the Savior is a left-handed son of the right hand, which is almost just telling us God loves to save us in completely unexpected ways, probably the opposite of what we imagine would be the case. And yet I do need to pause here because there has been 
a lot of confusion regarding what exactly this description of Ehud means. And you can hear a lot of sermons on Ehud in the book of Judges, and they would go in very different directions than I'm going to go. Because the word used to describe his left-handedness essentially means shut or restricted with reference to the right hand. It's not the normal word for left-handed. And this has led several scholars and pastors to speculate that Ehud was handicapped. He was crippled on his right side. And so you can hear many sermons on this text that Eventually, at the end, we'll compare Ehud to Jesus as a despised and rejected Savior, as one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. A Savior who came in weakness and who the people did not recognize as their Savior, and yet he was the one God had chosen. It's a fine comparison, except I don't think that it actually means Ehud was handicapped. Because the exact same word is used only one other time in the Bible happens to be in the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, this word is used to describe 700 especially skilled Benjamites. It says they're, they're all left-handed in this way, and they were very skilled with the sling, and a sling in ancient times required the use of both hands. So while I admit that this is not the normal word for left-handed, it seems unlikely to me that there was a very large contingent of Benjamites who all had the same crippled affliction on the right side of their body, and yet who all happened to be really gifted warriors. So, I believe the unusual word choice for this left-handedness was intended to imply that Ehud, these other Benjamites, weren't naturally left-handed. They had trained themselves to somewhat be ambidextrous because one of the, the ways they would do this is they would restrict or bind their right hand so they would become really good with their left hand and this gave them a lot of advantages in combat. And this is supported by what you read in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 2, which describes a bunch of mighty warriors who come to serve David, and they're all from the tribe of Benjamin, and here's how they're described. It says, They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjamites. So I believe Ehud was not crippled in his right hand, but he was a skilled warrior who could use his left hand with the same skill he could use his right. And as we'll see, this gives him an advantage. And so the story continues with how God uses Ehud's left-handedness to deliver Israel. For Ehud goes with a group of Israelites to offer tribute to King Eglon. So it was a normal practice. If you have a king who's oppressing other nations, those subdued nations would have to keep bringing tributes, offerings to the conquering king to maintain peace. The tribute was most likely produce. But Ehud, unbeknownst to anyone else, decides this is going to be a really good opportunity to save my people. So he makes a blade. It's double-edged and was probably about 15 to 18 inches long. Long enough to do serious damage, short enough to easily conceal. 
And because he's skilled with his left hand, he strapped the blade on his right thigh. Because you would always strap the, the blade on the opposite side of your dominant hand so you could easily draw it. Now this meant that guards normally checked the left thigh to see if anyone was concealing a weapon because they just assume, like today, most people are right-handed. But Ehud strapped it on the opposite side they would have expected. And this allows him to sneak it past the guards. At first, everything goes how people would expect. They bring the tribute, Eglon accepts it, Ehud and the other Israelites leave. However, Ehud eventually turns around and he goes back by himself. And he tells the king that he has a secret word for him. The king thinks it's a message. But Ehud, who I think is very clever, uses a Hebrew word that can mean word or message or object. And as the reader, we all know he's talking about the blade that is strapped under his clothes. You're almost invited to laugh at the way Ehud is deceiving everybody. At the same time, he's subtly telling them exactly what he's going to do. However, the unsuspecting king foolishly tells everyone to leave, which is implied by his command to be silent, and they all stupidly leave their king with a foreign assassin. Now, the palace was most likely constructed with a, a large audience chamber. So imagine you down there. You're in the audience chamber. Then there would be stairs going up to the throne room, which is what I think is being described by this cool upper chamber. And so the king would sit up on his throne way above, and there would be stairs going down. He would receive visitors, and they would leave. However, this room could be shut by curtains or doors and locked if he needed privacy. So everyone leaves the audience chamber and the king invites Ehud up the stairs to give him this secret divine message. And so Ehud walks up the stairs, tells the king yet again he has a message, just changing one word here to a divine message, a message from God. The king rises up just fully exposing himself for Ehud and Ehud draws his blade quickly and runs the king through. Then Ehud locks the doors, walks out. The servants eventually come back in. They find the doors locked. They know there were actually two thrones in the throne room, and the king was now using the other tiny throne. And as we know, there's now dung all over the floor, so the smell is probably letting them think, yep, the king's using the toilet again. And so they wait, and they wait, and they wait until they're embarrassed, thinking, how long is this going to take? Eventually, they think there might be a problem. They go get the keys, unlock the door, there's their king. By this time, Ehud is long gone. He summons the Israelites, blows the trumpet. They come follow him, and they annihilate the Moabites. And the land has rest for 80 years. So what do we do with this strange story of salvation? What are we supposed to learn? I have three lessons. The first lesson I think we're supposed to learn from this story is that sin is repulsive 
and it makes you a fool. As I summarize the story, you probably notice that it, at first I, I've left out certain details. I'm going to insert them now. The first detail I left out was the description of Eglon. Now, when we first meet Eglon, he seems to be a very impressive, formidable king. He's able to unite multiple peoples, and he's able to oppress and subdue the Israelites who have just wiped out most of the Canaanite peoples for 18 years. And yet, perhaps no character in the Bible is described in as unflattering terms as Eglon. For Eglon is intentionally described here as a comical and grotesque buffoon. If there's one thing that should strike you about this story, it's that the author is going out of his way to make fun of Eglon. In Psalm 2, it says that God laughs at the kings of the earth as they rebel against him and holds them in derision. And we are practically invited to join in that laughter when it comes to Eglon. First is his very name. Eglon is a very large man, and his name means little calf. It's also surprisingly given in feminine form, not masculine form. So he's an effeminate little calf. Next is his physical description, and he is said to be a very fat man. Now, when I read this again to my kids, my five-year-old Talitha stopped me right away, and she said, Dad, I thought we weren't supposed to call people fat. That's right. We're not supposed to call people fat. But if the Bible calls you fat, I don't know what else to do. So this term was also used to describe fattened calves that were prepared for slaughter. So it fits nicely with his name. The word could also be used to describe someone who was dull-witted or stupid. People with this, like this would be described as fat of mind. So the Israelites hearing this story were supposed to get this double entendre. So Eglon is described as immense and immensely stupid, which his actions back up. For who sends out all of your guards to be alone with a foreign stranger of a nation that you are oppressing? Now some suggest his name is in feminine form to imply that he was homosexual. And so he thought Ehud was offering something very different to him, which is why he wanted privacy. This is possible, not for sure. At the very least, we are to come away with understanding that Eglon was an idiot. And what is our last impression of this great king that has oppressed Israel for 18 years? Our last impression of Eglon is as a corpse lying in a heap of his own fat and feces, with his servant standing embarrassed outside the door, thinking he is having the world's longest bowel movement. You're supposed to laugh at this story. I'm not having to play this up at all. The author writes this so you come away thinking, this is ridiculous. And as I said, the smell coming from the other side of the doors made this a safe assumption. So Eglon is presented as a repulsive fool, and his death is supposed to leave one repulsed. 
Brielle's reaction of covering her ears and walking up, that's a natural reaction to this story. My son Corin's reaction was, this is so cool. I can't wait till dad preaches on this story. But the author is not just trying to gross you out for the sake of grossing you out. He's trying to show you how gross sin really is. He's not just trying to make you laugh at Eglon as a fool. He's trying to help you see how foolish sin makes you. You remember, in the garden, the devil promises Eve that if she rebels against God, she will be more godlike. She will be wise. She will be majestic. She will be impressive. But in Eglon, we get a picture of what a godless king or queen actually looks like. And Ehud's name means, where is the splendor? Where is the majesty? Now this describes kings like Eglon, but more than that, Ehud's name is to describe Israel during this period of the judges. Sin promises splendor, but it actually steals it. For as idiotic as Eglon was, you have to remember that this idiot subdued Israel for 18 years. They couldn't overcome him. The Israelites hearing this story were supposed to get the message. This is what happens when you forsake God Almighty. You can't even overcome an Eglon, people. For who receives more shame? Eglon or the people subdued by Eglon? Obviously, it's the people who are rung below Eglon. So in studying this passage, I was struck by how many scholars and commentators are, are questioning Ehud. Oh, he's so deceitful. Oh, he's, he's a murderer. And yet the author doesn't comment one way or another on Ehud's methods, and I don't sense any condemnation. What should strike you about this story is not Ehud being deceitful, but how this story reveals the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin is repulsive. It is foolish. Eglon is the embodiment of this, and yet sin deceives you into thinking it is great and pleasurable, and if you give in to sin, it will make you great and pleasing. And see, to be servants of sin, to be enslaved and subdued by sin, is far worse and more shameful than being a servant subdued by Eglon. And so when you read stories in the Bible that make you really uncomfortable, stories like Lot and his daughters, Judah and Tamar, and you think this is repulsive. When you read stories like Eglon in his heap of fat and feces, and you think this is gross. There's a reason these stories are in the Bible. It is because we are naturally, spiritually blinded to the hideousness of sin, and we need wake-up calls. Because sin to us looks beautiful, and the Bible is trying to tell you it's ugly. It's gross. It is heinous. Don't love it. That is what we should learn. My son, Corin has a very sensitive sense of smell. If there's anything unpleasant, the kid just, he starts gagging. He has to run out of the room. Anytime he walks in, I'm changing Winston's diaper. He walks in, he starts gagging. I said, get, get out. I can't handle it coming out of both ends right now. 
If only we had that kind of gag reflex to sin, we would be in a much better place. If we could just smell how unpleasant it really is. Sin is repulsive, and sin makes us fools. And these physical realities are supposed to wake us up to the spiritual realities we're missing. Do not be deceived by sin any longer. When you think it will make you beautiful and powerful, I want you to remember Eglon lying dead, face down in his fat and feces. Every time you're tempted by sin, I want you to picture Eglon. And remember, that's where sin leads you. And when you think sin will make you free and wise, remember how forsaking sin made the Israelites unable to overcome even a fat fool like Eglon. The deceptive power of sin is on full display in our nation. People mock Christianity as foolish, and yet what do they hold up as truth and enlightenment? Crystals, karma, Darwinian evolution. These are the height, apparently, of spiritual and intellectual sophistication. And yet what we are worshiping is worthy of mockery. Our gods are as useless as the idols Ehud walked past twice. You notice that? Here's idols erected to guard Eglon, and Ehud just keeps walking by them, and they don't do anything because they can't do anything. They're useless. Truly, sin is repulsive. It makes you a fool. And if you are following after anything other than the one true God, you're on the road to be another Eglon. So number two, second lesson, and this one is very brief, is that salvation, therefore, in light of what sin is, is messy. If sin is repulsive, if, if it is gross and reprehensible, then it shouldn't surprise you that saving someone from sin is messy work. As Ehud stabs Eglon, the fat closes over the blade and most likely Eglon's hand. It was messy to save Israel. Think of this. To, to save somebody, you have to enter into what they need to be saved from. If you've got to get somebody out of a pool of mud, you are going to get muddy. I think of emergency paramedics or physicians or surgeons. To save people's lives, they have to be real close to blood and disease. I think of police officers. Just think again of the shooting at Michigan State. As everybody else is running away from gunfire, what do police officers have to do? They have to run into it to save others. You think of firefighters. As everyone else is running out of burning houses, what do the firefighters have to do? They run into the burning house to save people. It's messy work because you have to enter into the mess to get people out of it. And so to save a people out of a world of sin and suffering, you need a Savior who's willing to enter that world of sin and suffering. A Savior who cares only about himself will be no Savior at all. Which leads me to the third and final lesson. Thankfully, we have a God who willingly entered the mess to save his people. When I became a father, I, I didn't realize how messy that was going to be. The sights, the sounds, the smells of parenting are not always pleasant. Parenting will literally lead you to deal with a lot of blood, sweat, tears, snot, and fecal matter. 
That's only the physical unpleasantness. And yet, not only did I discover how messy it is to be a father, I discovered how willingly I would enter into it for my kids. Don't think twice about changing a diaper and wiping up blood and cleaning up spills because I love my kids. It's just, of course you're going to enter into it. Think of how much time Leandra and I have spent changing diapers, wiping bottoms, washing clothes, cleaning wounds, and so on. Some of these messes are comical. Some of them are very serious. You know, I've told many of you before the, the story of when Brielle fell on glass and she cut an artery in her arm, and that memory will always be horrific to me, but one of the lasting impressions I will always have is of my wife, who at the first sound of Brielle's cry, sprinted to my daughter, dropped without a thought into the pool of blood that was just going everywhere, and held my daughter's arm closed until the ambulance got there. There wasn't any thought of, I'm, I'm going to get messy. It was just, I'm, I'm going to run, and I'm going to save my daughter. And the quick action of my wife and my mother-in-law did save my daughter. And so I thank God that we have a heavenly father who willingly enters the mess of sin and suffering, which is far more morally and spiritually repulsive than fat and feces to save his children. God looked with love upon his repulsive, foolish, sinful, helpless children, and without hesitation, he came to save them. In fact, he had planned to save them before he ever made them. And he did this by sending his own son into the world of sin and suffering to bear our sin and suffering that we might live. And Jesus didn't just get covered in our blood. He shed his own blood. So I want you to remember for a minute how repulsive, how foolish, how shameful Eglon is portrayed to be. I also want you to, to see that Eglon is portrayed as an animal that is being prepared for slaughter like a sacrifice. It's interesting how the author uses sacrificial language throughout this narrative. I already told you Eglon means little bull or calf. The word for his fatness is used to describe a fattened calf prepared for slaughter. But that's not the only sacrificial language. The word for Ehud's blade actually means flame. And it's used to describe the burnt offering in Judges 13.20. Which says that when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And the word for tribute that they use is the word for offering in Leviticus 2. And the word for brought near is used for bringing near sacrifices to the Lord's altar. And the word for Eglon's entrails and dung that go everywhere is used in Leviticus 4 and 11 because they had to remove those things from the bulls and burn them. All of this is to say there's a lot of sacrificial burnt offering language here. And what does it mean? Well, I can't help but think that it's another way of pointing to what Jesus did to come and save us. Not only did he become a sacrifice, but here we see Eglon again is a very shameful, worthy of mockery character. This isn't building up Eglon in any way for him to be like a fattened animal for slaughter. So I said, if you keep giving in to sin and following sin, it's going to make you an Eglon. Well, what saves you from being an Eglon? What saves you from being a repulsive, shameful, dead fool? 
It's that Jesus took all of this upon himself for our sin. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. He died our shameful death. He said you're almost encouraged to mock Eglon. And yet Jesus even bore the mockery that we deserve. Just listen to some of these passages that describe our Savior's willingness to enter into the morally reprehensible mess of our sin to save us. In Isaiah 53 it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He's not described as physically attractive. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now here's a great description of what we see of the Israelites in the time of the judges. But it's true of us as well. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. That's the Israelites. That's us. And yet we read, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And when you read about the crucifixion of Christ, it says, they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? They're mocking Jesus. Yeah, we chuckle, we mock at Eglon. They're mocking Jesus. It says again, Then Pilate released for them Bar Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Eglon deserved to be mocked. You and I in sin deserve to be mocked. Jesus took all of that mockery upon himself as he bore our sin, as he bore our shame, as he bore our guilt. Eglon was ridiculous. There is nothing ridiculous about Jesus. And yet he made himself ridiculous to save us from our sins. Eglon's gods were helpless to save him. Our God is not helpless to save us. And so yes, the story of Ehud is a very strange story. It is a misunderstood story. Many think Ehud was immoral and many think that this story is fanciful. But it's a strange and true story of salvation. 
And Ehud was God's chosen deliverer. And brothers and sisters, the gospel is also often viewed as a very strange story. It's often a very misunderstood story. The cross is viewed as immoral, as cosmic child abuse. Many believe the whole thing is made up. And yet the gospel is a strange and true story of salvation and Jesus is God's chosen deliverer. For Jesus is the very Son of God. Jesus is God entering into the mess to save his people from their sin. Oh, he had risked his life to save God's people. Jesus gave his life to save God's people. So some are embarrassed by the story of Ehud. Many more are embarrassed by the story of Jesus. Yet let us say with the Apostle Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God has saved us in an unexpected way. Perhaps the exact opposite way we would have imagined. But God's way of salvation is the only way of salvation. And that way is not ultimately through Ehud's sword. It is through Jesus' cross. And so as Ehud sounded the trumpet and called, so Jesus sounds the trumpet and calls. Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies into your hand. Will you heed that call and follow the one that God has raised up for your salvation? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that the sin that would repulse us most would be our own. But I pray that as you mercifully show us the hideousness of our sin, you would also show us the wonderful beauty of our Savior, who bore our sin, who bore our shame, who bore our guilt who bore the mockery we deserve, and who died that we might live. Thank you that you, did not keep, uh, that you did not keep yourself away from this world of sin and suffering. But in Christ you entered into it to save your people. For you are a father who remains committed to saving even his wayward, strain, unfaithful children. And so we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.